So good to see everybody here. Welcome to Elmira Baptist Church Sunday School. I'm not sure what we call this class, the auditorium class, <laughs> adult Sunday school class. I don't know. There's another adult Sunday school class. Um, we've been looking at Colossians for quite a while. What a patience you folks have, I'm telling you. But we've gone slow and we've gone deeply. And it's been a blessing to me. The last time I looked at this, I found a date on one of the lessons that taught before us over 20 years ago. And uh, um, it's just been a blessing to to see all the rich doctrines because Paul, as he confronted error, he dives deep into why or what you should believe. He doesn't go into don't believe this error. He goes into here's the truth and he presents the authentic, real, full Christianity. And most most uh, cults and most false teachers attack the Lord Jesus Christ and he proclaims him as fully God and and uh, fully man and uh, so we are uh, welcome to everybody uh, thanks for all of that are watching online we're looking at Colossians 2 8 through 23 if you want to turn there uh, we have been looking at false philosophy because it's like seven verses so we're uh, down to verse 14 we hope to do 15 next week, and um, we'll have a, a word of prayer. Then people from the congregation, the audience, will read uh, uh, the various sections. So if you'll turn and follow along as uh, we read to each other, I thought it'd be fun to have it that, do that way. So uh, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us as we look at the book and chapter of Colossians, Paul's warnings against heresy. Father, we thank you for the wonderful book of the Bible that, that um, Paul wrote and you by the Holy Spirit enabled him to speak your words. We know it's just as appropriate for us today as it was for the Colossians 2,000 years ago. We thank you that it's God's word. Every word is inspired. We thank you, Father, we thank you for, for the truth, the doctrine that we have concerning our faith and the church that's contained here in this, in this book. We pray that you would help us to understand it, every word. And Lord, we know we can't understand everything because our minds are finite. But help us to accept by faith what we can't understand and know that you have given that information to us because we need it and we're to live by it. I thank you, Father, for this church. I thank you for this class, all the people that are represented here today. I pray for all their, the families represented and the people and their needs. And I pray that you'd be with each one. We know that many have pressing problems outside this class. I pray for those that are at home that can't come due to uh, inability to travel or illness. We pray for comfort and healing. And uh, be with us again today. Help me to speak clearly and precisely, and Lord, help me to be uh, your spirit to use my words to help people to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, we've, this section of Colossians in chapter 2 has been on um, Paul's uh, uh, warning against heresy, and there's four areas, false philosophy, legalism, 
angel worship and asceticism. And those were things that he was uh, warning them about. Um, And these things were being promoted instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, well, your salvation is not really complete in Christ. And they attacked Christ and said that, you know, he wasn't really fully God and he wasn't even fully man. They were crazy uh, Gnostics. And these things were being presented as false views and you needed these things instead of or in the place of Christ. And that's what the false teachers usually do as they attacked Christ. So uh, if uh, I think Christy has uh, chapter 2 verses 8 through 15, if you'll follow along, uh, it'll start out 8 through 15 on philosophy, false philosophy. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, have he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Thank you so much, Christy. And verses 16 or 17, Steve, and this is legalism. But no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or respect by holiday uh, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body uh, is of Christ. And verses 18 and 19 are angel worship, and Cheryl has that. Okay, and the next uh, is asceticism. That's beating down of the flesh. That's verses 20 through 23. Miss Salmons. Thank you. You all read like you were reading like uh, Alexander Scorby or one of those guys that does the narrations, you know, really did a good job. Thank you very much. Uh, 
I wanted to do it that way to help emphasize the different sections, what was meant, and uh, and and also I, I followed along, and I, I I appreciate that as well. Now um, I want to move quickly through the review. Uh, we see the warning against false philosophy where he says, beware lest any man spoil you. And that literally means take you, kid, kidnap you uh, through um, uh, philosophy and vain deceit or empty trickery and deception. After, the, after man's tradition, after the elements of the world and not after Christ. And if you see in the handout there under number one, Christ is a true test of theology. He's the absolute standard and measurement for all doctrine. If it's not in accordance with Christ and the revelation God's given to us regarding his son, then we need to reject it. The basis and foundation of the warning in verses 9 through 15 is, verse 9, the supremacy and deity of Christ. Uh, for Verse 9, it says, for in him, that's in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so the supremacy and deity and the verses 10 through 15, the basis and foundation are the sufficiency and humanity. They speak to Christ's absolute and complete sufficiency, his capability and ability, that is his qualifications to meet man's need. And we, we have that, and the big letters right in the middle of the first page, Christ is all and all you need. Christ is sufficient. He is God. He is supreme. He is sufficient. And that's all you need for your eternal salvation and what all you need spiritually and all you need physically too. Christ is the sole source for what you need. And because of who Christ is, he's God in the flesh, and what we find in him, soul sufficiency to meet our needs, any other tradition of men, is including philosophy, legalism, angel worship, asceticism, is false because it's not after Christ. All else is false teaching and heresy. There were three affirming statements, next paragraph in verses 9 and 10, that relate to Christ as supreme and sufficient. The first one was number 1, verse 9. And this is right in the handout. Full deity of Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. And in this verse, because Paul was refuting error and making error clear, he said that um, we have one of the greatest statements of uh, God's deity, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's deity, any place in the Bible. And it follows Colossians 1.19 where it says that in him all the fullness dwell. You notice he uses that term fullness in the next paragraph. Paul takes fullness, which was one of the favorite terms of the Gnostics and, and false teachers of that time. And then he uses it against them. He takes it and uses it to describe how Christ is God. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. And he uses that over and over. And as we see that, I love those things because it really makes the text rich as you see how subtly but profoundly Paul refutes the heresy. Now, um, 
The second statement is the real humanity of Christ, verse 9b, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and Christ is God in the flesh, and we talked about how he was with God at the beginning. There was no beginning, but he was always with God, and, uh, and as in John 1, 1 and 2, and then, then when he became flesh, became incarnate in the flesh, uh, Christ was fully human and fully divine. Now, I can't explain that, how you could have two 100% and one 100%, but the Bible teaches that he was fully God and fully man. Um, and there's no illustration that will illustrate that to you. That's one of those things that belongs to the Lord, and he tells us, and it's important theologically to have that view, otherwise you, you go to error. The third thing that he, is, uh, he tells us is uh, that he gives us to um, talk about the, the sufficiency, the three statements, the three affirming statements. The sufficiency of Christ, number three at the top of page two. He's completely able and completely capable, verse 10. And he says, and you and ye are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So because God is fully God and fully man, we are made full, pleroma, that same word, complete in him as we share our fullness in him and in union with him. And only as we are joined to Christ is this fullness ours. And the main point that in Christ, our every spiritual need is met because of his resources that are made available to him in us. And one of my favorite commentators, uh, spiritual, um, uh, scriptural resources is Curtis Vaughn. He says, possessing him, that's Christ, we possess all because we have all the resources of the Lord Jesus Christ who is, has the Godhead bodily in him. So we have all those resources. Now, the going on, I put some other quotes in there, but um, um, there's no need to turn anywhere else. Christ is the source of life. He's a creator over all existence. He's a sovereign Lord. He's supreme over all existence. He's a sustaining Lord. He's maintaining over all existence. Now, that's the end of the previous three things. We have three more things that Christ has done for us that substantiate or show his sufficiency and that we're complete in him. And that's in the middle of page two here. And the first one we, we looked at last week, the spiritual circumcision, which is essentially salvation as we know it. And the second one is forgiveness of sins, verses 13 and 14. And then victory over the forces of evil, which is we hope to do next week, verse 15. So we talked about spiritual circumcision in verses 11 and 12. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Um, so that's not the physical circumcision. And putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Um, so the spiritual circumcision is the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, where, wherein also you are risen uh, with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And so um, we looked at that and we determined that 
that putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh was the word there means down at paragraph C, the last paragraph on chapter two, um, page two. Uh, the Greek word for putting off means a putting off or stripping off, a casting away. And through that imagery and the act of removing and discarding filthy clothing, this signifies the conversion through the spiritual circumcision of Christ that believers have. Uh, through that, they have a removal of the sins of the flesh and a removal of the power of the flesh as a result of salvation, we're a new creation. We can now put off the power of the flesh through the influence that influences us through the fallen nature, our old evil sin nature, and we can mortify the flesh and the body. Before salvation, we had one thing we could do, follow the old nature. There was not anything we could do that would please God. You... you, you you were a sinner. The Bible actually says that we were under our, if you're not under Christ, you're under Satan. So um, John eight forty eight. So now that we are saved, we are able to please God because we can, um, we can, we can, uh, the Holy Spirit lives within us. Christ lives within us. And we have a new nature that allows us, we're a new creation. We're able to have victory over sin. And there's a number of verses here. And then it goes right into baptism. It goes into baptism not to compare it to the old uh, circumcision, but it goes into it to emphasize in the middle of paragraph D on page 3, to emphasize that the Christians uh, participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we were buried with him in baptism. It's identification with Christ. And it's one of the two ordinances. And we're going to do the other ordinance here, I guess, this morning, uh, the Lord's Supper. And this is an ordinance that we do. Baptism does not save. It's a symbol uh, that is a public declaration that we have in obedience to what the Lord wanted us to do, that we have been uh, buried uh, dead, buried, and raised again, uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that we are associating with him, that we're Christians. Uh, that The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power by which we are made to be risen with Christ. In fact, that word operation there by the operation of God means energy or power in the Greek here. Okay, so number number two on this, this is the number two Second thing that Christ has done for us that demonstrates his sufficiency and his completeness and our completeness in him. And you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together, that quickened means made alive, together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. So in Christ we have Forgiveness of sins. You see that? Forgiveness of sins. And then A, in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. That's where I'm at. So I'm going to go slower now because we, on page two, page three. This is the new stuff, as Cindy said. Okay. So um, I want to, I found a, a commentator named, um, Bible scholar named uh, 
Charles Erdman that is, has a real gift for stating an overview of a passage. So I'd like you to listen to this quote as I read this. And this is from his book uh, on Colossians. This gift of a new life is associated by Paul with another act on the part of God, a gracious bestowal accepted by faith, namely forgiveness of sins. That's what we're talking about. The point being that forgiveness of sins is the second thing that the Lord has done for us that demonstrates his sufficiency and completeness. And the first one was salvation. Okay, so uh, it goes on. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, the pronoun is here changed from you to us. Paul thus gracefully associates himself with his readers. He gratefully acknowledges his part, his need also, and the pardoning grace of God. Such pardon was necessary. All had been under condemnation. Against Jew and Gentile alike, there was a bond, a note unpaid, an obligation unfulfilled in the Ten Commandments. Um, This bond was the law of God, chiefly the law embodied in the Ten Commandments. This bond Christ canceled by his atoning death, having blotted out the bond written in ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and which he had taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, we're not on verse 15, but I couldn't resist. I want to read this, his summary of verse 15. This death of Christ was not only a pardon, it also is a manifested might. Might is in power. It not only canceled a debt, it was a glorious triumph. By his cross, the mighty victor, capital V for honoring God, by his cross, the mighty victor defeated Satan and all his hosts. He despoiled them of their armor. He put them to open shame. He led them captive in triumph, having despoiled the principalities and the powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Why then fear the spiritual powers and angelic beings before whom the false teachers bowed in worship? Why submit to Jewish rites and ceremonies? Christ alone is the Savior. He is supreme. In Him is life. He meets our every need. Christ is sufficient. Paul's message is here. You don't need the other stuff. You just need the Lord Jesus Christ. And He, 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 he so masterfully presents that to the Colossians. When you dig down deep and you look at it and you think, Boy, that's just in your face. It's Christ alone, not all this other stuff, not angels, not legalism, not philosophy, not asceticism, not works, not anything else. Christ alone. So in Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. The verse continues the thought, uh, and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, 
made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So the verse continues the thought that as God raised Christ from the dead, in verse 12, he also raised us with Christ. We were dead. That's D-E-D, dead. (laughs) We were dead in our sins. But now, as believers through faith in Christ, God raised us with Christ. In Christ, we share his bodily resurrection spiritually. And MacArthur wrote, quote here, it's in your handout. Only through union with Jesus Christ can those hopelessly dead in their sins receive eternal life. So item B, I'm going to say this parenthetically. That means this is something that's not right on the subject, but while we're here, I want to mention it, okay? So like a parenthesis. So the resurrection of Christ, this is a quote by Vaughn again, the resurrection of Christ, who is the first fruits of those who sleep in death, is the pledge of their resurrection. Because Christ was resurrected, we talked about this a month or two ago, since Christ was resurrected, that's our hope of being resurrected. So we will also receive a bodily resurrection. Paul taught that in the future life in heaven, uh, we'll have a glorified body, which is a continuation of the spiritual life that we now have in Christ, all made possible by salvation, by faith, in Christ. So item C there, the next down, dead in your sins and the uncircumcision. This means that our spiritual condition is or was that we were dead because of our sins and we were the those that were not part of the saved. Uncircumcision is a term that was used by the Jews for those that were not part of the covenant. The circumcision was a a symbol of being in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and that you were uh, one, by faith you you were following God. And so their term that they use, and you'll see Paul use this often, the, the term uncircumcision was for the pagans, Gentiles especially. Okay, so the word for sins and trespass means a falling beside or a false step. And it indicates our failure to follow the path of righteousness ordained by God. And we deviated from the way of, I love that, we're not following the path, and this means you fell off the path. And uh, so the imagery here. So you're not following the path of righteousness ordained by God. We deviated from the way of righteousness and truth, uprightness and truth. So uncircumcision means spiritually those who are not saved. And the term was used like that. Now, one of the more famous places that that was used was when Stephen in Acts 7 was preaching to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the rulers. There was um, the great. There was a Sanhedrin in every locality, but uh, large enough to have some type of government, religious structure. But there were seventy men and a high priest, um, the main great Sanhedrin, the main one, and they were the rulers, and they would make decisions. So these were the religious folks, and. In Acts 7.51, Stephen, when preaching to them, he made them so mad that they stoned him. And guess who was present at that stoning? 
Paul. He held the coats. Saul at that time, he held the coats while they, while they uh, stoned Stephen. He said, Stephen said some harsh words. <laughs> he said, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears. And that was like cursing them. It really was. Those are powerful words. Stiff neck means that they were um, they were they were a pain. <laughs> okay? I mean really, they were a pain. They were a pain in the neck. Stiff necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do ye. And they stoned him. When he talked about the Lord Jesus Christ was God, they stoned him. And uh, I always thought that was really powerful. He, he was able to look up into heaven and really powerful. Anyway, so the uncircumcision uh, was used as a metaphor for those that were unsaved. And verse 13, uh, continuing the, the terms here, you hath he quickened together with him uh, and verse 13, Paul emphatically states that they were made alive together with Christ at the time of their conversion. He emphasizes their participation uh, <clears throat> in, in, the, in the conversion, or in the resurrection, rather. They did in the resurrection. Read Ephesians 2, 5, which... Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. But God, reading with verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. This is chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. We know those. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, that's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Paul here is telling them that God, um, he emphasized their participation in Christ's resurrection. It doesn't mean that believers were quickened in the same manner or resurrected in the same manner, same way, because the Lord Jesus Christ was God and we uh, were not. We were sinners saved by grace, but we were raised with him and that expresses that fellowship and the new life that's now made possible by Christ and that believers shared it with Christ. The next one is having forgetting all your having forgiven all your trespasses. Verse thirteen means that God, at the same time He quickened us, same time He resurrected us, He forgave us. For the experience of forgiveness is simultaneous with quickening, Vaughn. Forgiveness and quickening, quickening are the same act of divine grace viewed under different but complementary aspect. You look at from one side, it looks like quickening you look from the other side it looks like uh, forgiving so they're very closely related that's a, a, a scholar named bear b-e-a-r-e -E. so i have a note down here the word forgiven and i really do love this if you like to look behind the scene the actual words look note the word forgiven that's used here is based on the root word for grace so the 
The root word for grace is C-H-A-R-I-S, I believe. And it means to grant a favor or kindness, to give freely. For by grace are you saved. It's, it's something unmerited that, that God did for us. And it, it means to give, give freely and to grant forgiveness freely. So I think that is indication to us that divine grace is a foundational principle at work here for forgiveness. Uh, because even the words are the same. And uh, so forgiveness of guilty sinners who put their trust in Jesus Christ is the most important reality in Scripture, John MacArthur. Okay, so turn the page. We're now on um, number four, page four. Okay, so... Um, the next uh, part, this, now we're starting verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So when I, when I read this, I thought, that reminds me of the hymn, um, My Sins Are Blotted Out, I Know. And I want to read that to you. It's on page 322 in your hymn book there. My sins are blotted out, I know. What a wondrous message in God's word. My sins are blotted out, I know. If I trust in him, in his redeeming blood, my sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. They are buried in the deepest of the, in the depths of the deepest sea. My sins are blotted out, I know. Once my heart was black, but now what joy. My sins are blotted out, I know. I have peace that nothing can destroy. My sins are blotted out, I know. And the final verse, I shall stand someday before my king. My sins are blotted out, I know. With the ransom host, then I shall sing. My sins are blotted out, I know. Uh, so the next time you, this is where that came from, the verse that that came from. Um, the verse expands our understanding, verse 14 expands on verse 13 and expands our understanding of forgiveness, describing it um, and what it means, um, what forgiveness means and how it was accomplished. So having blotted out, that means having canceled. The act by which forgiveness is completed is literally that which was against us was wiped out. Okay, so it means to um, and that's it. the the word blotted out was a compound of a word from out and to wipe. So it was to wipe out. It was used for abolishing a law, indicating meaning uh, the meaning of cancellation. So um, city has three nineteen. Uh, Rev, um, Acts 3.19 Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out in the times of repression shall come from the presence of the Lord. So you, you heard that um, so your sins will be blotted out. And it's in Revelation 3.5 He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot his name out of the book of life 
but I will confess his name before my father, before angels. There it's used in a uh, negative sense, uh, positive to us because he would never block out our name. Uh, so I, I was looking at that and I thought, well, what kind of situation would the Lord not blot out? So the, um, MacArthur says, under no circumstance will he erase those names as city officials often did of undesirable people on their roles. In the old days, they could say, you're no longer a citizen, get out of town. And the Lord will not do that. Okay, so I used, I put a couple of other places. Yo, oh, yes, she, Sheila. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, right, right. This blotting out is um, something that will actually w wipe it away. And so they would, uh, you would actually... Um, use something that would just completely wipe it away. And it, it, it was imagery for um, doing away with it, canceling it. So the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. Boy, that, so here we have, um, so, okay, this is you be the theologian, okay? Okay? And somebody said, no, 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 yes, 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 okay. <laughs> okay, so, um, there are three views of this, three main views. Okay, what's the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that, that was wiped out? Okay, it was against us and contrary to us, the handwriting of ordinances. Well, the first th view is that it's an indictment written against a prisoner accusing him, of, him or her of offenses. Okay, it's an indictment against a prisoner accusing him of offense. In other words, we were all guilty of sin and we have an indictment before God against us. Number two, a self-confessed indictment or charge list to which the accused had admitted and signed their name. Um, Barclay has that view. And this is also reflected by Phillips who said, Christ has utterly wiped out the damning or condemning evidence of broken laws and commandments. And then the third one is a handwritten note or bond of indebtedness, a signed confession of debt. And that's Bruce. And this view is reflected by Goodspeed. He said, he canceled the bond which stood against us. And this is all a question of imagery. What is meant? What did Paul actually mean? Was it only an indictment that was against us? Was it uh, an indictment? or charge list which the person had already signed their name to or was it a handwritten note or bond of indebtedness a signed confession of debt and I don't know that there's a lot of different views and as long as we pick a view that shows that we were sinful before God and that we were guilty and that we needed salvation it's, it's, that is an acceptable view um, I tend to lean towards three um, because the, of the imagery that I've read in different places. A, a handwritten 
bond of indebtedness, a signed confession of debt. <clears throat> uh, and uh, but you you decide, you decide. It's those those three. Those are the main things. Okay, let's move on in the interest of time. Note the reference here is to the Mosaic Law. Okay, that we all transgressed the law. And there's three descriptions used of the law here, the ordinances. The, it was written communications contained in ordinances. Um, Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to, for to make of himself of twain, that's two, one new man, that's Jew and Gentile, so making peace. That's uh, the, a place where we could see what that word ordinances mean. It's the law. There's a written code of regulations and requirements. Number two, the, the other description is that was against us. God's law had a valid claim against us in that we had failed and it condemns us and shows us as guilty. And that was contrary to us. The laws also stood directly opposed to us. Uh, you'll actually see enemy or enmity in some, some verses. Since we could not meet its requirements and claims, it was in a way of speaking hostile to us. So ordinances, it was against us and contrary to us. The law justly stands, rightly stands, in opposition, opposition to us, accuses us, declares us guilty before God. So I want to read J. Vernon McGee, who likes to take difficult concepts and express them simply. He says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, the old flesh of ours, he says, this old flesh of ours has been condemned. When Christ died, he died for you and me. He paid the penalty for our sin. When the Lord Jesus died, they wrote above him, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He was being publicly executed on the grounds that he had led in a rebellion. This was, of course, not true. But that was a charge against him. When the people standing there read the sign, they understood he had been disloyal to Caesar, at least charged with that, and that he had, <clears throat> in that he had made himself to be a king. To them, that was the reason he was dying on that cross. But when God looked on that cross, he saw an altar on which the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was offered. God saw another inscription there high above the inscription that man had written, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that which was, that which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. What did God write on that cross? He wrote the ordinances. He wrote the Ten Commandments. He wrote a law which I cannot keep, ordinances of which I am guilty of breaking. When Christ died there, 
He did not die because he broke them. He was sinless. But it was because I broke them, because I'm a sinner, because you are a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he does a southern thing and he says, Therefore, my friend, if God has saved you and raised you from the dead and joined you to a living Christ, why should you go back to a law that you couldn't keep in the first place? Because that's what the uh, Gnostics wanted them to do. Go back to the law. The Judaizers, go back to the law. You can't even keep the law today in your own power and your own strength. You see, the law was given to discipline the old nature. But now the believer is given a new nature in salvation and the law has been removed as a way of life. So, I think this is a good place to stop because the uh, next part um, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross and the part that I have left. Uh, I want to make sure I'm not rushing through because we need freshness and a clear mind to to get it all. But we're going to talk about the law on the, and nailing it to the cross and what Paul meant and how his uh, continue on how forgiveness is um, a way in which he demonstrates Christ's um, sufficiency and supremacy. Questions that we had on that? Anybody have a... Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for each one that's here. I pray you bless the families represented. Thank you for those that are watching online. We pray your blessing for them. We pray for healing. We pray for spiritual healing, physical healing. I pray you would... Uh, comfort those that need comforting, that you would encourage those that need encouragement. You would bless all of us. Thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to look at your word. I thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We pray, Father, that we would live by your words and we would follow the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray you bless the service to follow and all those who are able to attend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.